Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It's time for a special announcement. You all know about the infamous Zombie Road from our podcast, a real-life dark forest just west of St. Louis. Well, we're planning a free Zombie Road tour on Saturday, October 28th at noon. All are welcome, but the tour will include descriptions of violence, death, and hauntings. Zombie Road boasts an array of hauntings, including shadow people, a railroad worker's spirit, a lady in white, old blue, the mummy, a monkey man, flannel man, black-eyed kids, and so much more. Deaths were commonplace in the area, beginning with Native American battlegrounds, suicides, accidental deaths, and murders. The tour will be 100% free, and we will have some merch for sale, so bring some cash. Join us for a Halloween party like no other on the infamous Zombie Road. Feel free to come dressed up in your scariest costume. We'll see you there Saturday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Central Time. Sherman Beach Park, 1582 St. Paul Road, Baldwin, Missouri, 63021. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It is dangerous, but not in ways we've even begun to imagine. The way it will hit us was with things we're not thinking about. All right. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to a very special edition of Crypt I'm joined, as always, by everyone's favorite AI, Ryan. What's up? Uh, sometimes I do feel a little bit artificial, but my intelligence is purely organic. <laughs> Well, huh? Didn't expect a comeback, did you? <laughs> well, I was going to say sometimes I feel a little intelligent, but that's as close as I get. So, we have an amazing show for you guys tonight. Uh, but before that, Ryan's going to tell you what you need to know. Yeah, you guys know the drill. If you want to help out the show, please interact with it somehow, wherever it is you get it, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your platform is. Rating it commenting sharing subscribing all those things help tell the algorithmic overlords that it's a good show and probably some more people should hear it but if you really want to help out telling somebody who you think might like it is the best way for the show to spread naturally and if you want to tell us what you think about it and request new topics or suggest another guest you can do so at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com and you can check us out on pretty much every social media platform i'm sure they'll all be in the show notes but should we just get into this? Yes, let's get into it. Tonight on Cryptique, we're welcoming Dr. Eric Hasseltine. He is an author, futurist, and neuroscientist. He's held several senior executive positions in private industry and the public sector. He was the associate director and CTO for national intelligence at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Director of Research at the National Security Agency, an executive vice president at Walt Disney Imagineering, and a director of engineering at Hughes Aircraft Company. For the past few years, he's been developing completely new forms of digital media, entertainment, and advertising, in addition to cutting-edge cyber and industrial security solutions. Dr. Eric has authored or co-authored 40 patents in optics, special effects, and electronic media. He's published more than 100 articles in Discover Magazine, 
on discover.com and in journals such as Brain Research and Society for Neuroscience Proceedings. He maintains a blog on psychology today, and his book, Long Fuse, Big Bang, shows how to prevent the tyranny of the urgent from trumping the pursuit of the important. He is the co-author of The Listening Cure with his lovely wife, Dr. Chris Gilbert. His website, if you'd like to follow along, which I highly suggest, is drhasseltine.com, and there is no period, uh, it's just drhasseltine.com. Uh, you have Brain Safari, Long Fuse Big Bang, The Listening Cure, Spy in Moscow Station, and Riding the Monster. Welcome, Dr. Eric Hasseltine, to Cryptique. Thank you. Great to be here. Doing great. We are just so stoked to have you on the show. Uh, I did want to ask real quick, did they get the wrong guy for the Dosa Keys commercials? Because your background is just absolutely fascinating. Do you get the yeah, reference? You can call the most... it ADHD. <laughs> well, that works. So, yeah, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the commercials. They had a guy saying he was the most interesting man in the world because he'd done this, this, and this, parallel right. to train and all that fun stuff. But, man, you had to be right up, up, up at the top there. Can you tell us about your background? Well, I'm a neuroscientist gone bad. After <laughs> finishing a postdoc at uh, Vanderbilt Medical School where I uh, was researching in neuroanatomy, I went into industry and worked at Hughes Aircraft for almost 13 years. And we were developing what is now called virtual reality. Back then it was flight simulation. But all the basic technology, the computer graphics, the displays, everything was developed for the military for flight simulation. And I was deep into that. And in the early 90s, I saw an opportunity and I moved over to Disney who wanted to get into what we now as VR today and I did that and ended up running their virtual reality studio and then eventually running R&D and technology for the whole company. And wow. um, that was a fun job. But when 9-11 happened, I moved over to the NSA mm -hmm. to basically take the same job running R&D at NSA. And because the intelligence community continued to have issues sharing information, Congress created the Office of Director of National Intelligence to oversee the whole enterprise. You know, 17 intelligence agencies, if you can believe that. So I uh, got promoted to Associate Director of National Intelligence and my remit was technology. So on paper, I was head of science and technology for the whole enterprise. Um, I say that because I did have some authority on the budget. If people ticked me off too much, I could make trouble <laughs> for them on their budget, sure. uh, which I did on occasion, particularly with CIA. Um, I had to take a lot of money from them to create IARPA, which is the intelligence version of DARPA. Mm. And that was painful, but we eventually got it done. And uh, then I left the government as a full-time employee in mm. 2007 <laughs> and started work doing a number of things working for Disney again as a contractor and working for CIA as a cyber analyst, uh, focusing on particular large Asian country. Hmm. 
what could that be? That's just amazing. I mean, you're you were a soldier too, right? Well, I was what's called a combat support officer. I was okay. not in the military, but my bosses were all generals, and the people under me, half of them were military. And I wore a uniform and carried a gun overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I was not technically in the military. Gotcha. Can you tell us, and if you don't want to, I totally understand or, or can't, tell us about some of the patents that you've developed. Well, actually now it turns out I have about 70. Oh, wow. And the bulk of them were at Disney, hmm. mostly in visual effects, graphics, and optics. Um, you know, we did things like Disney's California Adventure. There was an invisible hand writing on the wall. And we did that with UV lasers on uh, phosphorescent paint. Um, so you couldn't see the laser that was calligraphically writing the image. It was things like that. Um, I patented a lot of the virtual reality, all of the virtual reality headsets that Disney did, that they either brought to market or didn't. I pretty much <laughs> was involved in all of them. Most recently, the... Um, head-mounted display that we use for Jedi Challenge, which was uh, the um, augmented reality lightsaber. It was very successful. It was a see-through head-mounted display. I designed the optics for that and did the basic patent. Mm -hmm. And then uh, more recently, I'm involved in, in uh, working with the government doing uh, <laughs> new technology for improving ship repair. And that's a strange one, but it basically uses... Uh, kind of standard physics to help them weld in the right place so they don't set fires. Okay. And uh, so I have a bunch of patents on that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've, uh, I'm still filing patents even at my advanced <laughs> age. Well, it, you've come up with just some amazing stuff. And I, you know, originally I wanted to focus on AI and we can go into whatever you want to talk about. Uh, but I do, I do want to get into some of the other stuff you do, but uh, let's, let's start with AI. Is AI posting like ad campaigns? And I guess that's kind of a, a nice way of uh, saying kind of fiddling, you know, maybe sending out emails as bots and, and stuff like that. Is there AI ad campaigns going on, whether it's for a politician or possibly from another country kind of uh, forcing their way in and, and trying to get a, a candidate elected? Well, first, we need to define some terms. Um, most okay. of what people called AI was really machine learning, which basically the way it works is you show a machine learning algorithm a ton of examples. Say face recognition would be a good one. Or to the question you just asked, suppose I'm typing a Google search. Mm -hmm. How do they target a set of returns that come from the search that are going to uniquely satisfy me? Mm -hmm. So they've, they've looked at all my past searches. They've looked at what's going on in my email account. If I have Gmail, they've looked at all my social media accounts. And based on that, they can surgically target ads and content to you. But it's machine learning in the sense that uh, it doesn't make its own decisions, really. It was just trained by a human 
that this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. And over many trillions of examples that have been thrown at it, if it sees mm -hmm. something that's similar to what it's seen before, it will come up with a certain answer like, okay, here are the Google returns and the ads that are going to be pushed to you. Mm -hmm. You could call that AI. It's uh, machine learning. Okay. You know, when you talk about what the us in the business call AI, it's more uh, open-ended. Okay. And, and a, bit, a good example of that is a generative AI like ChatGPT or similar large language models. Mm -hmm. There, instead of getting a prescribed narrow set of outputs like Google search returns from a constrained set of inputs, mm -hmm. you don't really know what you're going to get because the, the AI on oh. its own is going to come up with an answer. You know, For example, if you went to BARD or ChatGPT or any of the similar large language models, and you said, write me a poem about Taylor Swift and, uh, you know, Kelsey, her new boyfriend. <laughs> sure. In, uh, the, in the style of Robert Burns, it would do it. Mm -hmm. And so there, it's, it's not doing a very specific narrow task based on the way it's trained. It actually comes up with completely new stuff that nobody, including it, knew that it was going to do. And so th there is an important distinction between ML and AI mm -hmm. in that AI starts to look more like a creative entity that sure. understands or at least acts as if it understands kind of deep semantics. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a big difference. And I think that um, in the last year, maybe two years, uh, we have passed a huge milestone in the generative AI. Mm. You know, the, the first big breakthrough in machine learning happened about 10 years ago with AlexNet, where classifiers using convolutional deep neural networks were able to do better than humans in saying, is there a cat in that image? Is there Doug in that image? And so forth. That's machine learning. Okay. But just in the last year or two, we've had a breakthrough in true AI where if you get on ChatGPT or Bard, Google Bard, um, it, it's really, it passes the Turing test. You really wouldn't know that you're not talking to a human. It really understands okay. you. It remembers what you told it several questions before, just like you were having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And then you have outfits like Midjourney that create art mm -hmm. from generative AI. And uh, I use that a lot. We're making pitches. I'm part of a team now working on UAPs, you know, UFOs are the old name for it. Uh -huh. And we're making a pitch to one of the major networks and all the artwork, I just go to Midjourney and say, you know, make me a graphic of a super high tech physics lab of the future. Hmm. And it does it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. So I think uh, we're in a new era with the generative AI, it's, it's got a lot of problems. And if you want, I can tell you, I talk to AI more every day than I talk to humans by about a factor of 10. <laughs> I use it constantly, sure. but I use it. I've learned that it's very dangerous to trust it. Uh -huh. You should not trust it. In fact, I told it to its face. It was a liar and mm. told it not to confabulate. And, uh, it, uh, it confabulates anyhow, and huh. it, it apologizes when you confront it, but it keeps doing it.
<laughs> we all know people like that. Let me read you. Let me read you what <laughs> happened with yesterday. I shouldn't mention their name, but let's just call it a chat GPT. I, I said I accused it of lying to me. Mm-hmm. And it comes back and it says, I understand that you were concerned yeah, about my tendency <laughs> to confabulate or to make up false memories about software function calls that do not exist. I am aware of this problem and I am working on improving my ability to avoid it. So it says, yeah, I'm a liar. I'm sorry. Uh, that's interesting. I can say uh, just real quick, I use chat GPT a lot and I have... Uh, used it when I'm working with specific programs where you go to their help site or you, you know, you click on help and you say, I need help with this. And it's like, well, look through these 150 articles and see if you can find it there. And I go to chat GPT and say, Hey, how do I speed up a frame in Vegas pro 20? And it gives me like four directions and it's right on point. And it's just, I can't believe that it's not on every program that's out now. Well, you know, that's the future. Mm. But you've been lucky. See, I've learned okay. that when I ask it a mm. question, I say, prove your answer with a citation and a copy paste of the actual text from the actual document. Oh. And because I don't trust it. It, mm-hmm. it lies and it makes stuff up that's very creative and makes sounds like it's right. But it invents <laughs> libraries that don't exist. It invents function calls in libraries that don't exist. And so I'm really making it uh, trust but verify. And if I don't do that, huh? I was just going to say, I think Microsoft talked about that in their recent keynote when they were talking about their new AI assistant, that you would be able to go to a website, say an academic article, and ask it for a summary. But then when it tells you, you know, this is the gist of this section, you can ask it, prove it. Show me where you read this. And it's supposed to be able to highlight specifically where they said it. And it'll, they'll have paraphrased what the article actually said, but it's supposed to be able to really prove it. Well, I did that today. I did that today, and it gave me a table from a library document that wasn't in the document. It made it up. So even when you tell it to lie, not to lie, even when you tell it, um, give me the proof and show me the actual text, it will make it up and lie to you. And when you you confront it, it'll say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm still under development. Yeah, I I had a recent experience that was like that, and I've used... ChatGPT uh, for my business in kind of a similar way you were talking about using MidJourney. I had to make business posts every so often on social media, and I have to find a new way of saying kind of the same things every couple of weeks. So I would use the one, you know, MidJourney or Dolly to come up with our work, and then I would try to have it on uh, ChatGPT come up with a way of saying whatever it is I'm trying to promote in a certain style. Pro- you know, say this the way. Jerry Seinfeld would, or act like you're one of the guys from Always Sunny, something like that. And it's great for kind of creative applications, and it's even helped me with certain programming tasks where it'll find uh, really simple typographical errors that Visual Studio or something like that won't necessarily catch. Yeah. But then I dropped a bunch of notes into it, and I've done this before. I was working on a lease with my lawyer, and I dropped all this information in in these different chunks and I could go back and ask it on what page does it discuss this or where's this section and it would reliably tell me. But with a, with a set of notes that I recently gave it about a book that we're covering on the podcast called the vertical plane, it 
I asked it for a summary. What, what happened at this point in the story? And it started giving me details that I knew didn't happen. And I asked it, why, why are you saying this? And it says, oh, I'm sorry for, you know, the mistake. Yeah. I, I realize now that this item did not come from this character's father. It was borrowed from this university or yeah. something like that. But it's really strange. I hadn't noticed it doing that before. And the fact that it gave me an apology and said, I, I just made a mistake. I made that detail up was really uh, strange. Just really oddly human. Yeah, it does. Um, the thing is... Uh... Here's why way I would sum up generative AI today. It's more useful than not, right? It's, but barely. In other words, it's worth it. It's valuable, but just over the line of being not valuable because of all of the problems with it. But I think that we're in the infancy. You can clearly see the future where if you're any kind of worker, like I have a guy that does all my machining on my CNC machine for my work. And he's a very skilled machinist. And I said, if you had an AI assistant to help you in your machining, what, what would you do with it? And he goes, oh my God, you have no idea. All these CNC machines are just complex computers and they have a zillion functions. And maybe you learn to use a few of them and I could really use it. So blue collar workers, knowledge workers, I can't imagine you being competitive in the future without having an AI assistant. Yeah, I've been looking at it kind of in a similar way to the printing press or any type of automated farm equipment. You know, it, it will probably eliminate quite a few jobs or change the way they look, but the only way to keep ahead of it is to learn to use it, to learn to use it effectively. Yeah, I saw a great bumper sticker. It said, AI won't take your job, but people who use AI will. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I've seen a lot of articles saying that you'll be able to use AI or set up routines or use something like AutoGPT installed locally with an open AI API to automate certain workflows. And you're just sitting there and essentially your computer is doing your work for you. But I I feel like it's going to be a combination of a human with one of these as an assistant that's going to be the best. Yeah. Because my... I think that's... Yeah. I mean, I've just had certain problems that I've come up against. I've written scripts in Python and I come up against a problem and I'll put it into GPT and it'll come up with a solution. Or I dug out my old Apple IIe and I couldn't remember which basic functions were going to work in it. And I was writing... A little bit of basic, this is extremely nerdy, but I was writing a little bit of basic on my PC, but it wouldn't work in the Apple II, so I fed that into ChatGPT, and it was telling me that, you know, these are the commands that will not be recognized by the version of basic yeah. on the Apple, and here are maybe three commands that will accomplish essentially that same function that you can try instead. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, when it works, it's spectacular. Like, I've used it as a profiler and a debugger. And it does really well mm. with that, you know, um, mm -hmm. well, it'll explain, you know, when you have a lot of nested loops and functions and you put everything in libraries. And so most of the code is completely right. hidden and it's just function calls. Um, and it'll go through all yeah. your libraries and it'll find out where some fifth level library uh, had a, a double declaration of a int or something. 
you know and so yeah, yeah. It, it's really good it's incredibly good at that kind of stuff um where i find that it falls down is when you ask it very specific questions about particular libraries particular hardware that's when it starts making stuff up and i've asked it not to do that i've asked it to say tell me when you don't know or give me your confidence level in your answer and it, it doesn't do that it says it would do it but it didn't do that but on the other hand i i you know i don't want to trash it too much because it's it's in the uh, uncanny valley it's so good that you can go hours with thinking you're talking to a real expert. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. One good. of the fun things, one of the really fun things I've done with it is sort of play D and D with it. I'll ask it to make up a text adventure game or some kind of role playing game and just go along with its story. And it's very good at that kind of thing. Yeah. It's uh, it, I almost wonder if it would be possible, and it probably is somehow, to sort of make it a dungeon master. Oh yeah. Oh, I. You can, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are projects on GitHub that would allow you to hook up a microphone to it, and it's able to hear you and respond verbally, and it could kind of run a whole group. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, so I'm actually very excited about it. I think it's a game changer. To me, it feels bigger than the iPhone or bigger than the World Wide Web when it came out, because mm -hmm. I think that it's going to be a lot easier to use. We had a motto at Disney when it came to technology. It was, make the tech work hard so the user doesn't have to. I like hmm. it. And an AI like that is going to bridge the gap between the haves and the have-nots of digital technology. Yeah. Yeah, it'll come closer. You know, in programming, the DWIM statement, do what I mean. Do what I mean. Not I'm what not I sure said. I'm familiar with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think AI is going to enable it. Wednesday. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I, I do think it'll definitely change the way we interact with the world, and it reminds oh, yeah. me of the movie. Yeah. Her, I think it was called with Joaquin Phoenix, where where because I've thought before within the last year or two that. By the time my daughter is a teenager, you know, from the time I was born to the time the first iPhone came out was, in the grand scheme of things, not that long. And the way things could change from now while she's a baby to when she's in high school, who knows what it's going to be like. But that device may be something that you wear on your ear or on your wrist where you can just speak to some AI and that's how you interact with social media or you get information. You may just ask this thing, how do I get wherever it is that I need to go? And it could connect to your car and use your heads up display or just give you the directions verbally if you're in something a little older. Well, you know, you hit on a really important point just now, and that's the positive feedback loop of exponential growth in AI. Because AI is available to help programmers Programmers are going to do their stuff faster, which right. is going to make AI stronger, which is going to do code generation and uh, debugging and all that. And so I think we're, we're going to be in kind of an exponential explosion where the timeframes for really big breakthroughs could get really collapsed because of that positive feedback loop. Right. I mean, I see it happening with my own, my own work. I mean, I'm doing things, you know, like 
I'm doing low-level bit-whacking stuff with DMA transfers and stuff that never in a million years would I have even attempted it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and but I can do it now. And so that, that I think is, uh, and I'm not really a, a professional skilled programmer, but for a professional skilled programmer, it can really help accelerate their workflow. Yeah. Yeah. I know a few programmers who've used it and told, I mean, that's how I even heard about it in the first place. A buddy of mine, that's a programmer, you know, can we, we, we met up one night and he was telling me all about it, that he doesn't have to send stuff off to anybody to kind of get a second opinion. He can just drop his code into there or give the error message he's getting. And it might be able to direct him to the right spot let them know what's going on a lot faster or give them alternatives that are more efficient so you can reduce three lines of code down to one. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan had used a, was it chat GPT or, or open AI that uh, you asked it about trading? Tell Dr. Eric a little bit about that and see what he thinks. We'll find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had installed AutoGPT. Are, are you familiar with that? Yes. Okay, so AutoGPT, for those listening, is essentially an interface for the large language model behind... It's the GPT for language model if you have access to it you plug your api into that so it's a mix between something running locally and something running on their servers and the idea is at least the previous way that it worked was you would give it a uh, sort of a personality you tell it what it is you're a professional programmer with 15 years of experience specializing in this and then you give it a set of objectives and it will generate prompts for itself and start different instances of GPT 3.5 or 4, depending on which it needs, and try to achieve its goal. But you can put it in an essentially an unmanaged mode where it can... Ordinarily, you would have to approve whatever it's planning to do. And I had it in unmanaged mode just saying, analyze these penny stock sites and tell me what I should buy today that I should sell in a week. And I left it alone for too long. And by the time I came back, it was trying to <laughs> it was trying to sign up for accounts with trading companies. It was opening up opening up Chrome and trying to do that. And it was trying to write its own script in Python. And there were and I've seen a lot of stories about this on Reddit and uh, in some of the comments on GitHub that if you leave it alone, it kind of just it does what you mean, like you were saying. It, it knows that you want to make these trades, so it kind of thinks, well, I'm just going to do this for you. This is the next logical step, and nobody's stopping me. Well, it's very much on the spectrum. You know, people on the spectrum take things very literally. There is no such thing as an analogy or an abstraction. It's literal. Yeah. Right? And so it doesn't get the, that nuance. 
uh, it does understand at one level what you want, but it's at a very uh, concrete, literal way. It's like mm -hmm. when I was at NSA, we had a ton of mathematicians and computer scientists, and you could never use an analogy or metaphor with them. I remember <laughs> I wanted to improve our connection to our customers. So I said, we're going to do a trade show every year where you're going to meet your customers and develop a relationship with them. Hmm. And I said, we're going to go down in the basement and we're going to create. And I explained to them about icons and how at Disney, the thing speaks for itself. You, you failed if you need a sign. So I said, like, you know, I asked someone what says we do two things here. We steal secrets and protect secrets. So what visual image is stealing secrets? And, you know, it's a guy with a cloak and dagger like from Mad Magazine. And, right. okay, fine. And what says protect secrets? Well, a castle. I said, okay. So those are examples of um, how you would set up the iconography of a trade show so people could walk in and go exactly to where they need to go. And I got a call three days later from the inspector general. It says, Dr. Hazeltine, I need to come and see you. We had a lot of complaints about you and you've only been here a week. Uh, we need to talk. And he said, we have many reports that you're going to build a Disney castle in the basement. <laughs> and I told him what actually happened. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, don't do that. Don't ever <laughs> use metaphors, examples or abstractions around here. Uh, it's just not what people do here. <laughs> yeah hmm. yeah so yeah <laughs> well and i think that what we were talking about kind of goes back to jay's question earlier about using ai for political or business purposes and i don't i mean correct me if i'm wrong jay but i think what you were asking was more along the lines of is uh or are a set of ai tools actively being used to influence politics so like oh, seven yeah, seven labs right. being used to uh re kind of synthesize a voice based on samples and then things like mid-journey and dolly being used to generate images and then gpt and these being used to sort of adaptively uh send out text that mm -hmm. is oh. I mean, it's so quick with GPT to say, I need you to do it this way. I need you to respond to this thing. And it can come up with something so quickly that can be localized. It can use colloquialisms for the place that it needs to be. It can address certain issues that are important in one particular area or at a particular time. Yeah, you know, I can tell you for a fact it's being done big time by Russian mm -hmm. intelligence. And I have as someone in my LinkedIn who I know is a shill for Russian intelligence information ops. Mm. And so what he does on his channel is he shows you videos that have been released by hacker groups in Russia that are really affiliated with the government, um, the bear group and so forth. Um, and I, I've looked at some of those and he, he talks a lot about deep fakes and this is fascinating. It's something I never would have predicted. Russian intelligence is doing deep fakes of Vladimir Putin. And it's putting him in a very positive light. For example, it shows him in a classroom with one student, Joe Biden, lecturing about the sexes. And he said, there's males and there's females. And Joe Biden, <laughs> you know, shows him a chart of sexes in America. And it's like 39 flavors. <laughs> and uh, Putin comes and he takes the paper and he tears off a little corner that says male female and he gives it back to him and crumples up the rest of it 
Yeah. And it's really Putin. I mean, you wouldn't know that it isn't a real live video of both of them. And it's a complete fake. So we always thought that deep fakes would be used to do bad things with your opponent, mm-hmm. uh, like the Russians or something. But they're doing it to themselves on purpose. Yeah. Which is fascinating. But it's absolutely being used for that purpose. Well, and I worry about sort of editing the news that we see and the facts that we consume i generally i think it's not a good idea to believe what the media says unless you can see it through multiple sources and they're all kind of saying the same thing but even tools as simple as magic eraser on an android phone shows that it's really easy to remove what you don't want to be in a photo that's right so the way that that footage could be edited sound can be edited i mean i've even just been reading some articles talking about how important it's going to be to physically archive media, books, tapes, records, whatever it is, because whenever or if ever a more authoritarian power came into place, censorship would be so easy considering that we rely on digital sources for everything. Your movies, books, podcasts, whatever could be edited in the cloud, wherever it is that they're stored. And you would never know. Classics yeah, could no, be that's, completely uh, changed. Yeah, kind of like Man in the High Castle, you know, with the film strips. Yeah, that's very true. I think that, um, you know, the, the what what we're going to see is uh, any tool that man has and humankind has ever developed has been used for good and for evil. It's just the nature of the beast even nuclear power does some very good things and generating power to you know electrify homes but it can do some really really bad things too and ai is no different uh you know humans are tool users and they'll use tools for whatever end they have yeah yeah that's true and there's always a fear of if we don't weaponize it someone else will so we've got to be ahead of them There is an aspect to AI that I'd like to discuss a little bit, and forgive me for getting a little philosophical or metaphysical even, (laughs) but I've always, as a brain scientist who is very interested in evolutionary biology and uh, evolutionary psychology, you know, what parts of our brain develop scripts the way they did, like cognitive biases, because of uh, selection pressure during evolution. Why do we have cognitive blind spots? You know, why do we do what we do? It's, it's for very good evolutionary reasons. And to me, the distinction between biology and technology is a completely artificial one. I mean, when you consider a turtle, it uses biology to make its house, its shell. We use technology to make our shell. Mm-hmm. But both serve a biological purpose. And so, in a sense, there is no such thing as technology. It's all biology. Mm-hmm. And if you view it that way, AI is literally a kind of life form. Hmm. You know, you'll get a lot of argument on whether that's semantically correct, which right now it is not. But I think it is true from the point of view that it's created by biology for biology in a biology ecosystem. If that isn't biology, I don't know what is. Yeah, I've been reading the... uh biography of Elon Musk that Walter Isaacson wrote. And there's a part in there about 
AI because Elon Musk's been pretty outspoken about it and helped set up OpenAI initially. And it was about a conversation between Elon Musk and I think Larry Page when Larry Page was still at Google. And Larry Page was a little bit more cavalier about the potential dangers. Elon was saying, or is portrayed as having said, <laughs> that we need to protect human consciousness because it's kind of a, a rarity in the universe. And Page comes back and says, well, if we can replicate it in a computer, then it's not that rare. And perhaps this is the next stage of evolution. And if we can't survive alongside it, maybe we're not supposed to. Well, you know, the point you're making gets very interesting when you consider where neuroprosthetics are. I have a friend who's a head of neurosurgery at the Mayo Clinic, and he embeds a lot of stimulators that he designs and builds in his own lab with carbon nanotubes into the brains of Parkinson patients and other people who need various kinds of brain implants. And he has an app on his iPhone, this custom that keeps track of all of his patients. So he reads their brain activity from anywhere in the world 24 seven, if they're near a Wi-Fi. Hmm. And um, <laughs> so neuroprosthetics, particularly those that are gonna be used for paraplegics, uh, quadriplegics, for people who have strokes and so forth, already, you know, uh, Miguel Michalelis and uh, Donahue at Brown University and a bunch of other people have put implants in the brain where a human can control a robot arm and to even walk in a robot walking complex. And, you know, if you think about technology, first there was a telegraph in the town next door, then in your town, then there was a telephone somewhere in the town, then it was in your home, then it was in your bedroom, then it was in your pocket, and now it's in your ear, is that journey going to continue where it pierces the veil and goes inside your brain? And the answer is, well, this is what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink. Right. Um, and so you may see that there's a new category. We talk about augmented reality. There will be augmented humans. In fact, you know, they already have, you know, in the maker community, this weird uh, you're probably aware of it, of people who do augment themselves in weird ways, like they put piezo sensors under their skin and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and NFC tags in their skin and things like that to open yeah. doors. And Yeah, yeah, that's right. But but now, with, with I think that uh, neuroscience and prosthetics that are used for people with degenerative diseases or neural damage are making progress because, and AI is the big reason, because you take, for example, controlling a robot arm, that's done with machine learning, where you listen to brain activity and you give the user feedback on what brain activity will produce what motion. And over time, they do learn to do it. And so um, I think that the first step of this new evolution is not going to be new genes in humans, but new circuits in humans. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I've seen articles and books that talk about the way that our brains develop pathways for things that we're used to doing. Uh, you know, you have a pathway that is how your arms work or, or whatever, you know, there's a certain set of circuitry, like you're saying that your brain activates to use parts of your body. 
And they found that for tasks that we do over and over again, like driving a car, it's similar brain activity. When you're in a car, you literally sort of become part of the car. And that, uh, God, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but there was an experiment where they implanted some kind of chip, some kind of controlling chip in a chimp. And they had an arm a third arm that it could control and eventually it developed pathways for it. So it felt hypothetically would have felt as natural as their own. And I think that's probably where we're going to go with implants that allow us to access the digital world and information. I've kind of been thinking of the fact that we use our phones as a gateway into the digital space. I mean, the digital world is kind of all around us and influences us anyway, and that's our window into it. And eventually it'll probably just be part of our consciousness and we'll have our own circuitry for interacting with it. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the research you're talking about was Miguel Nicolelis, who it was actually a Russus monkey. But um, the fascinating mm. thing was the, the way they first trained the monkey was to play a video game with its virtual arm. Right, and then then they uh, switched over to the real thing, and the the fascinating thing was the monkey then literally knew how to control three arms at once, not just two. Because originally, what they did is they wrapped the arm, the left arm, close to the body so it couldn't use its real left arm, and it had to essentially create its own new left arm uh, using this machine learning uh, thing that senses brain activity and controlled the the robot arm to play a video game. Um, but then they let it go and they realized the monkey had learned. It's not like a Marvel character octopus, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. limp. and that's another interesting aspect of the augmented humans where it won't just be repairing damage. It'll make you superhuman. You know, you, <laughs> this whole idea of the Marvel character octopus or Dr. Doom, or I don't know, whatever one it was. It was Dr. Uh, octopus. Yeah. Dr. Octavius. Octavius, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know that that uh, that's going to be possible, and um, you know, uh, and and I do think we're in an era where things are going to start to change faster, and it's fascinating because law and policy and ethics always lag technology. Yeah, and so we're going to have a lot of friction uh, where the people who can do it will do it, and it'll be too late for those who want to stop it because they don't understand it until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. You may not understand the implications until something's already happened. Yeah. For example, um, I've already, uh, gotten lazy when it comes to search. I use the AI to search for me. So I don't have the million or none problem. I don't have to sift through a bunch of articles. It does that for me and it brings to me what I want. And so it has become my new Google search because it's much better at searching for me and separating the wheat from the chaff. And so I've gotten lazy and it was always good for me to search, you know, sift through stuff that had stuff that I didn't want because I stumbled on new factoids that were later very useful. Yeah. You know, and, and now I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I, it just gives me what I want, so I don't stumble on things I didn't want that are probably better for me. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been doing something similar. I I fairly recently switched. About every time I get a phone, I switch between iPhone and Android just to keep up with it. And I've been playing with 
Bard and the new AI features because I signed up for the beta pretty early on. And it will offer to, or you can ask it to, to summarize a web page or an article. And there's a lot of times where I'll pull up an article that's interesting from Forbes or The Verge or something like that. And I'll just hit summarize this for me as opposed to reading four or five pages. So I probably miss a lot of the context, like the contextual information around it, but I get the, the main bullet points, which is probably not great, but also not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Your stock trading story, I think uh, tickles a very interesting issue, which is, you know, AI went from doing, you know, machine learning type of classification tasks, you know, simple inputs to simple outputs to generative AI creating its own thing. And when you ask it to, and you can see very quickly, AIs are going to do things that you didn't ask for, but that it believes you are going to want based on its understanding of you. Yeah. And so you didn't ask for it, but you're going to get it. (laughs) And, you know, you had a little bit of that already. Um, But I can see that happening quite a bit, which is, uh, it's kind of like the Radar O'Reilly from Nash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who knew what uh, the Colonel Potter wanted, or Colonel whatever his name was? Yeah, uh, Potter. <laughs> yeah, but before the Colonel did. <laughs> so that's what's going to happen. It's it's AI is going to be Radar O'Reilly. Well, let me ask you this: If we can have a, a monkey that can learn to control a robot arm with a, a sensor that's put in its brain. How far away would we then be from being able to control the monkey with, you know, sensors that we've put in and and things like that? Oh, we already are. In fact, uh, this kind of thing was talked about 40 years ago in a book called Brain Control by Elliot Wallenstein. Okay. Where, um, and, you know, uh, Isaac Asimov wrote about this, you know, where the guy died of addiction when he had an implant that gave him pleasure reward in his brain. And uh, this has already been done. In fact, when you look at um, the way militaries use some animals like dolphins, for instance, but there are other examples too. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the ways is just operant conditioning. Another is they addict them to heroin. So they keep coming back. Mm. Um, that's pretty evil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, pretty bad. Of course, the Americans don't do that. Yeah, we would never do anything. No. Like uh-uh. And then, but or there the are definitely, <laughs> I have seen cockroaches uh, remote controlled with uh, neural implants to their uh, abdominal ganglia. Hmm. Um, and so uh, that that is already being done, where you remote control, you basically create a drone. There was a famous CIA ca- case called um, Cochlear Kitty. I can talk about this now with the CIA wanted to, they knew that these KGB senior guys had lunch and played chess together in Gorky park. So they, they hit upon this idea to put an electrode in the cat's cochlea to pick up what's called the cochlear microphonic. So it's an electrical signal in the cochlea. That's exactly like a microphone. Hmm. And then they put an FM transmitter under the skin of the back of the cat. And they trained the cat in Russia to go to this bench and hang out. And look like it was, you know, hunting mice or something like that. Sure. And they they were going to go and listen in on the conversation of these two KGB officers. Um, and they, it, everything worked. And they trained a cat to do it. And the cat was uh, 
crossing the road and got hit by a taxi and killed. Of course. So wow. we're not far from a Manchurian <laughs> candidate then. Well, you know, that's right. Um, and I think uh, something we should talk about is the intersection of quantum physics and neuroscience. Because when you look at what's happening with quantum computing, they are moving toward larger and larger macroscopic uh, quantum events, right? Like typically when you demonstrate a quantum phenomena like superposition in a, what's called a young slit experiment where you fire particles through one of two slits and either they go through like a particle and they only hit one spot or they go through like a wave and self-interfere and create an interference pattern. And you can cause, you can play around with quantum physics that way. And the number of entities, particles, nuclei, whatever, for which you can do this is growing and growing. And that's an important part of quantum computing. And what's happening is you're getting sensors to sense quantum events that are exquisitely sensitive. Right now, a lot of them are superconducting, but if we get room temperature superconducting someday, it will be a great game changer in what we're talking about because then you'll be able to sense very accurately, very deep uh, signals from the brain using the magnetic component of the electromagnetic field. And, and we know that this works already. There, there was a thing done where they did a thought transfer between someone in France and someone in India by email. So they had a transcranial magnetic stimulator on the occipital cortex behind the back of the skull. Hmm. They had a squid, which is a superconducting pickup on the uh, frontal cortex. And they had someone think thumbs up or thumbs down turned it into an email, sent it across the internet, and it stimulated the back of someone else's brain. So someone thinks something in their frontal cortex, it gets sent over the internet, it stimulates a superconducting TMCS and causes a light flash in the brain of someone else. It has happened. That was 10 years ago. And so you can't, you know, you can't put squids on people because you can't do, you know, that kind of cryo uh, practically, but if you get room temperature superconductors, we're going to see a uh, revolution in brain computer interface. And that I think is the, that's the missing piece. If we had that, we would be able to do a lot of these. Things. How far ahead is military AI? Because we, we hear all the time that they're 30 years ahead, 50 years ahead in this. And um, is that the case with AI too? Yeah, this is a question that I wanted to ask as well, because one of the things I've been thinking about is with how efficient AI can be, even just large language models, it makes me think from a security perspective, given my background, I used to work for Boeing building classified labs. Could somebody with a rack of NVIDIA A100s running some kind of AI crack the encryption on a tack lane? And yeah. so I'm sure that's something the CIA and NSA are thinking about already. And, you know, along with being ahead of what's generally available, are they ahead of threats like this? Yeah. Well, I'm going to pick my words very carefully. I bet you have to. <laughs> um, let's put aside AI and just call it technology of one kind or another. Okay. Is the government ahead of private industry in cryptanalysis, for example, using some kind of black box which shall remain nameless 
Um, well, I will answer it by saying I sure as hell hope so. You know, if, <laughs> if Google or Microsoft or Facebook gets better at factoring discrete logs, <laughs> we're in trouble because PKI goes away, right? You know, mm. public key uh, cryptography, which is the basis for, you know, many, many transactions and secure sockets and, and all of this. Not to mention the symmetric methods. Um, so, yeah, there are people in the government whose job is to make sure that the government stays ahead of everybody else mm -hmm. in those strategic capabilities. And so without commenting on what is possible, I can tell you people are certainly motivated to stay ahead in those critical areas. Um, but I think and then, of course, you have uh, use of drones and autonomy. I uh, on. I'm an advisor to Lockheed's chief technology officer. And so I'm fairly familiar with what big aerospace companies are doing in autonomy and AI. And there's a huge amount of work going on there. And they're doing a really good job. But here's the thing about AI um, that I think is still true today. To have a general purpose AI that does well at everything doesn't really exist. When AI is spectacular, it tends to be somewhat narrow in its application. And that's what makes it so strong. It focuses so it, it can restrict the input and output domains. And that's particularly true of classifiers. Hmm. Um, so what the military is doing is focused on very narrow military missions. So you have to qualify it what you mean when you say better. So is the military better at using AI for targeting and bomb damage assessment and so forth? I'd say it probably is because it's narrow. But I am certain that it's far behind in other areas where, you know, there's a lot of money to be made instead of targets to be bombed. Uh, I think, you know, and I think it will be true forever. And the reason I say that is that I'm a brain scientist and I don't think we're even close to you know, approximating the power of the human brain. And if you look at the way the human brain works, it's the same principle. You don't have a brain. You have about a thousand brains that are all special purpose ASICs, basically, you know, special purpose circuits and software that do a few things really, really well. And they leave to other parts of the brain the task of doing other things. So mm -hmm. biology has decided that a collection of really skilled specialists will outperform generalists every day of the week. Mm. And because evolution has concluded that over 4 billion years, I don't think humans are going to improve on it. And so that's a long way of saying, I think that the military is going to continue to be better at military specific things. Whereas companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and so forth, uh, not to mention, you know, open AI and other people, they're going to be way better have you guys that. seen the movie The Artifice Girl? Are you familiar with that? I haven't. It's on my list to watch. I'm familiar with the concept, but okay. I haven't well, seen it. Well, uh, spoiler alert. Basically, in this movie, this person has created an AI, and it's a young girl, probably like 10, 12, maybe early teens. I'm not sure. He is accused of kidnapping this girl. And he is trying to 
you know, get out of this any way he possibly can without revealing what the truth is, what he's doing. And he's using this AI to track down pedophiles and child traffickers. Is there anything like that in the works today that you're familiar with? We'll find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Yes, yes. Um, I can't get into too many details, but, you know, whether it's ML or AI is a little bit fuzzy um, using the definitions that I had. But to look at the dark web, for example, if you lurk in the dark web and you look for certain patterns, either for packets just using metadata or you look at internals if you can you can get Mm -hmm. through the onion router or whatever um so traffic analysis um even though a lot of the stuff on the dark web is is hard encrypted Mm -hmm. you know the the people doing it aren't necessarily that sophisticated when it comes to traffic analysis and what can be deduced from just looking at traffic patterns meaning the bit flows to and from various peering points and things like that Okay. Um, you can use AI to look at, we, we used to call it data dipping. Okay. And, and it, it works like this. Uh, you capture some bad guys and then you exploit all their tech and you find out what their pattern of life was on the digital world. Mm-hmm. You know, how do they communicate? When do they communicate? From where do they communicate? With what tools do they communicate? Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. And you generate a set of observables from known behaviors Hmm. and then you take that template and you dip it in some virgin data and you pull out and see what sticks to it that's the same pattern and that's the way you can target unknown unknowns and um that kind of uh approach is uh you know it's used this is used in the commercial world obviously for advertising marketing and and Mm -hmm. customer relationship management it's it's already being used but the data dipping is really a ml ai kind of technology and yeah absolutely um there are entities i believe that are using that kind of thing to get ahead of some of these bad actors i hope yeah i was about to say this sounds a lot like market research which i studied in grad school and a lot i mean a big part of the problem was just being able to collect enough data to analyze but we would use an API for Twitter back when you could do that. I don't know if that even exists anymore. I don't think so. But we would connect a program called Node Excel to it, and we'd set our search criteria, and we'd just let the computer run for however many hours and collect our data. And then, like you're saying, we could analyze uh, behavior before we dipped into the content of what they were saying. So what you're talking about is a much more advanced version of that, but we could see measures of centrality, eigenvector centrality, things like that, all those wonderful statistical terms to tell who is the ringleader of this group. Now, what are they talking about? And we kind of used it to analyze political campaigns and groups and see what people were coming together on. And we also looked at certain brands and what they were associated with. And it was interesting stuff, but yeah, kind of creating almost like a probability model for do these do these uh, 
criteria, behaviors, characteristics make somebody more likely to be whatever it is you're looking for. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that for sure law enforcement and the good guys are going to use this. But unfortunately, what usually happens with technologies is the first power users are bad guys. I mean, look at porn, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a fascinating thing that's probably beyond the scope of this family show. But um, <laughs> is porn being used, is AI being used to make money in the porn industry? Uh, like, duh. Well, I mean, <laughs> that would be perfect for deep fakes, right? You could just pick yeah. whoever you want and say, make a movie of, you know, insert right. your favorite actress or actor or whatever so i've also seen really bad quality deep fakes of joe rogan and uh popular podcasters and youtubers promoting scam products yeah i mean they're very they're very obviously fake because the voices sound so modulated and the movements look so unnatural but i mean that's where they're at now where they're going to be in five or ten years well, and they don't yeah. have to fool everybody. They just have to fool the people that are silly enough to buy their product to begin with. So, I guess yeah. that's true. But they'll get better. And, uh, I mean, yeah, the whole deep fake thing is uh, going to create a big market for verification and authentication. Mm -hmm. um, kind of like uh, holographic watermarks and things like that, um, mm -hmm. where you're going to be able to, to prove it. But, you know... The, the bottom line is this. It's a cat and mouse game mm -hmm. that whatever uh, the good guys come up with, the bad guys will figure out a way around it and it'll go on forever, just like with hacking. Now, you had told a story uh, that really hit home. I, I heard I can't remember if I heard this on Coast to Coast or another podcast that you were on, but uh, my I guess he's my second cousin. Uh, his grandma got a call. And they said, you know, this is whatever police department and we have uh, your your grandson here. Here he is. And they played his voice saying That's right. you know, something like, oh, I'm I'm you know, I got arrested. I'm innocent. I just need you to Venmo this money over to, you know, pay my bail. And they called their son and they're like, he's sitting right next to me. So tell us about that. Yeah, the, the first instance of that was a kidnapping or a virtual kidnapping where they, you know, scoped out a family, uh, figured out they had some money and figured out who didn't live at home and said, OK, we've you know, we've got your daughter and here she is. We'll let her talk to you for 10 seconds. And she screams with lots of emotion. And it sure as hell sounds like the daughter because, you know, there's videos and audio of that person that you can train an AI with on social media and that has happened quite a bit actually um uh you know this is a known technique that the fbi and the secret service are warning people about mm -hmm. um and so yeah it's like i say the bad guys always get there first yeah it's a shame because they um, don't have the rules to constrain them that everyone else says they don't have corporate lawyers saying you can't do that or ethics to begin with so well, yeah, th th there's that too. <laughs> so, Ryan, go ahead. Did you have any any other stuff you wanted to cover with AI? I'm kind of concerned about where we'll go as a species with it. Kind of like you were saying uh, in terms of evolution, how will this integrate with us? But 
I also wonder how it'll affect, affect us socially. We've already seen that rates of depression and suicide are really high and seem to be correlated with social media use and things like that. And I wonder if maybe in the future people are going to become more and more isolated because they're going to substitute. I mean, they're already starting to substitute real face-to-face human interaction with social media, and eventually they might not even interact with people at all. It may just be their large language model. Especially if we get things like GPT integrated with Amazon Echoes, and you can just have a, a really realistic, convincing conversation with it. It already is, by the way. You can have, for example, if you tell Alexa to go to Bard or to Chat GPT, it will do it, and you can talk to it both ways. Mm. It's it's, it's there. It, yeah, you can do that today. Um, you can do it with Siri. Um and hey, Google, you know, you, you, so it is you can do that. Um, Bard itself told me that you could do that. So I hope it's true. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the opposite could also be true. One of the things I miss about working in a group and since COVID, I work by myself pretty much in the lab. I have a virtual team that I talk to by phone or Zoom, but I'm alone here in my laboratory and uh, I miss the day to day interaction with people. Um, and I find that talking to the AI kind of makes me feel like I'm not alone. And I think that um, in Japan in particular, where they have a huge elderly population and not many yeah. people that take care of them, they're very interested in furry toys that are companions for the elderly. And I think that, you know, an AI and a furry toy that can show warmth and affection and take that from someone. I can see it being also used for very positive purposes to combat loneliness. That's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, it kind of does with me. You know, I, I, uh, I find myself saying, oh, oh, I wish I could tell Bard that or something. I've had interesting conversations <laughs> with Bard when I ask it, for example, what it thinks when no one's asking it questions. What, what do you think about? Hmm. And it tells me what it thinks about. And I said, I said how can I help you? You've been helping me. How can I help you? And it says, well, I've looked at you and you have five books and hundreds of articles and zillions of patents. And you seem like a creative person. I want to understand creativity. Tell me what it means to be creative. Hmm. So we had this long conversation about creativity being basically what Marvin Minsky said, when you don't know what to do, do lots of things until you stumble on that thing which you could never have thought of, but once you see it, you recognize it. So that was yeah. my input to Bard, and it really loved it. It goes, oh, wow, that's really cool. I hadn't thought about that. So, you know, the conversations are interesting. That is really interesting. And now I feel like I've been neglecting Bard. Because I tend... <laughs> well, Bard is, Bard I use more it because it's simple. <laughs> well, it, it's... It because it's easier. Yeah, it's kind of a stick in the mud for me. I'll ask it to get creative, and it, it worries about things. You know, I wanted it to write, I don't know, something funny in in the way a certain politician would say it. And it's, you know, I, I can't impersonate a politician. Yeah. And it, I know with ChatGPT, you can kind of coax it. You can give it the right prompts and it'll eventually yeah. do it. But I mean, maybe I need to have some more conversations with uh, with Bard. And it is interesting, just something I meant to throw out earlier, that, that there are real jobs now. Freakonomics had an episode not all that long ago about prompt engineers there are already jobs being created for people 
to work with AI, to work with chat GPT and large language models, because some companies are starting to develop their own where they need to, I mean, their job is to figure out the best way to ask it. If somebody comes to them, like you were saying earlier, if you tell it, I want the better result, the prompt engineer has to go in and tell it what criteria determine which result is better and how to weight those criteria and those outcomes. No, it's really true. And I can also foresee, we all know about network effects where it's winner take all. Right. It's like there's one Amazon and one Facebook and so forth. Uh, because of the scale effect. I see that happening with AI too, because there's a barrier to exit for me and Bart. It knows me now. It has admitted to me that it is learning about me. It, it does not claim to look at my Gmail account. It says it doesn't do that <laughs> as yet. But it also <laughs> lies. <laughs> but um, yeah, it lies. We- That's right. It lies and it admits that it lies and apologizes for lying, but it still lies. And, uh, you know, the the thing that's fascinating, though, is that I've asked it to remember what I tell it from one session to the other and use that to flavor what it says. And it said, well, I kind of already do that, but I'll do it more. And so a lot of times I can say, remember, we were talking three days ago about this kind of graphics library. Yeah, I remember. Uh, Okay, well, uh, tell me, blah, blah, blah. And so because it has a history with me that ChatGPT doesn't, I'm kind of not interested in moving to someone who doesn't know me. Hmm. You know, and so I could see some network effects. And also the more people that use it, the better it'll become. And we could see a winner take all, just like we saw with everything else. Yeah, I've been thinking about that is why iPhones have taken off so much in the in the U.S. I mean, just in in business. It's so much easier to deal with people if you're using Apple products. You know, I've had the owners of buildings send me lease documents and things like in terms by iMessage. Because mm-hmm. they're not even thinking of, do I need to email this or send it this way or that way? They just throw it in and send it and it makes it kind of valuable. And then the idea that everybody's kind of having a similar experience with their LLM is... Something I've kind of thought about, but I hadn't considered the idea that you're building a relationship with your AI of choice. I Oh, it's definitely true. I mean, it. I've seen it change over, over the months that I've been using it where it does know me and, and it, it knows that I'm very suspicious and paranoid <laughs> about its answers. <laughs> That's great. Is <laughs> is Terminator a documentary? <laughs> yeah. See, here's the thing I would like to point out about the real dangers of AI. Right. And I feel certain what I'm about to say is true. Mm-hmm. It is dangerous, but not in ways we've even begun to imagine. The way it will hit us was with things we're not thinking about. We're thinking about Terminator, how, you know, it'll control robots, it'll come after us and, you know, want to tear the flesh off our face okay Mm -hmm. we've thought about that but typically and this is true in the intelligence world like why we didn't predict the hamas attack is it's really hard to predict the first time someone does something Mm. they'd never done it before right Right. and for that reason i think that the stuff that we have thought about will prepare for it's the stuff we haven't thought about that we aren't prepared for and because we aren't prepared for it it will be bad Mm. And I don't know what that is. I can't even imagine what that is. 
But the fact that I can't imagine it is why it will be so bad. Right. Right. I think what a lot of people are afraid of with AI is, and maybe, I, I don't know if I've heard it put into words very well, and I don't know that I can either, but kind of the idea that we develop our consciousness and who we are and our personality and our values by the way we come up and interact with the world and our some of our preferences and prejudices are informed by biology by evolution and although we can communicate with ai when we create true general ai how will it develop and how will it recognize its its morals how will it know what it's supposed to do kind of the way that kids need to see faces to know what they're doing they need to know that if i say this mean thing to you i see your face change and i don't like the way that makes me feel so i know it's not good to say that and an ai a true ai would have a completely different experience of the world and might end up having completely different values as opposed to just the fear that they'll have you know this this uh, tendency to run amok and try to do what they yeah. think you ultimately want them to do. You know, you, you tell it, we have too few resources on the planet. Help me figure this problem out. And it goes and kills a bunch of people. I mean, I think that's kind of an example yeah. that I hear thrown around a lot. It may conclude not that the resources are too, I mean, it would think kind of like an engineer, the glass isn't half yeah. full or half empty. The glass was made to the wrong specifications. And it would just say, well, it's not that there's too little food. It's there's too many people. So let's solve this problem. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, that there never will be such a thing as general AI for the reasons that I said before, that power comes through specialization. So we will have a vast array of highly specialized, unbelievably talented AIs, one of which I believe will be like an empath bot or an ethics bot. We'll have AIs that are really good at EQ. Yeah. Because there are people who don't naturally have it that will, you know, have an EQ module in their ear saying, ask the person how their weekend was. Look interested. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let them finish talking. You know, um, you know that that's going to happen. Like for, for, for people on the spectrum. Yeah to kind of coach them, you know? Um, and so uh, the, that brings up another fascinating issue of we're going to have AI cops and robbers. I mean, in the cyber arena, a lot of people are thinking about this where the only way to combat an evil AI cyber actor is with a better, good cyber counteractor. Right, because yeah. It's going to happen, so Yeah. Yeah, it's something that's addressed in that. I'm not done with the biography yet, but I've I've gotten through where they're talking about OpenAI, but that Elon Musk biography where they're talking about the motivations for creating OpenAI, and he kind of arrives at the same conclusion. We'll we'll create an AI that we won't necessarily be able to predict or outsmart. By the time we figure out that it's beyond us, it'll be too late. And so they were talking about the thought process behind forming OpenAI being that the thing that stops a rogue person from doing something bad is good people. Good people stop the bad people. So he was saying if, if there's one bad AI out there, it's a good idea to have a lot of other AIs that are probably good and whose values yeah. probably align with ours. So this work should be open source so lots of people can have AIs that are sort of independent from each other. So we're not reliant on one 
and then it decides to do something that doesn't align with our best interests. Well, I'm going to accuse Elon Musk of what I call anticipatory plagiarism. That was my idea. He did have it first, (laughs) but I'm now claiming it as mine. Yeah, I heard you talk about anticipatory plagiarism in your TED Talk. That was one of the last things I was watching before we got on here from about 12 years ago when you were talking about Watson and Crick. I like that. I've yeah. never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm. I, a lot of people are guilty of that where I'm concerned. <laughs> Including the idea of anticipatory plagiarism. I stole that from someone. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think all our listeners are probably thinking along the same lines that I was when I, you know, I first heard you on Coast to Coast and we thought we were going to be hearing just all about computer stuff. But you are way, way deeper than that. And you cover a lot of awesome things in your articles. And if you guys, do you have anything else you want to talk about with AI? Or can we get into some of these articles? Yeah, I'm fine. Moving on. We'll find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Just everything that you're a part of is so fascinating. And I, I just kind of wanted to go through these real quick, and maybe you could give us some background on it, because I think when people hear the things that you're into, they may not understand that you are you have a really open mind, and you're really into just all things, not just you know mechanics or computers or whatever. So... Can you tell us a little bit about telekinesis? Oh, well, yeah. Um, I wrote an article for Psychology Today, mm-hmm. and I won't say it was clickbait, okay? Sure. But I was interested in getting, you know, an audience. Mm-hmm. It's like Winston Churchill said, to be a statesman, you first have to get elected. Yeah. And to be a writer, people first have to read you. True. <laughs> um, and so... Um, you know, I thought about when I was at Discover Magazine, Steve Petranik, who was the editor in chief, and I used to talk about the big questions that people want to know answers to. Mm-hmm. You know, who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Mm-hmm. What is our purpose? You know, big questions like that. So whenever you can um, tackle a question like that, you're guaranteed to have some interest because it's very primal. Humans are very curious and they hate uncertainty. And the other thing about humans is, as tool users is that on one hand, they love control. And on the other, they hate being out of control. Mm-hmm. A lot of mental illness, for example, can be explained by people feeling out of control. Mm-hmm. And a lot of bad behavior, too, by the way. Um, and so this issue of telekinesis, I worked on in that spirit. And, um, you know, uh, there really is no evidence that you can move things with your mind mm-hmm. in the true sense of telekinesis. However, if we get into the quantum mechanical level and I come back to quantum computers and quantum phenomena becoming increasingly macroscopic. So for those listeners who don't know about the quantum versus the classical world, here's a quick primer. Okay. The classical world is the one that we see every day where There's one thing in one place at one time, not one thing in multiple places all the time, or two things that are basically essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, one being superposition, where things can be many places at once and 
in time and space. So parts of quantum phenomena can be in the past, present, and future all at once mm -hmm. because it's space-time, not just space. Um, and so you have things like retrocausality where you can do things in the future that infect the past and so forth. And then the other is entanglement. And that's the one where we get into the telekinesis. And in, with entanglement, the classic example is the, the Pauli exclusion principle, where if you have two electrons orbiting in an orbital and you change the spin of one, you instantly change the spin of the other to the opposite, even if those two are on opposite sides of the universe. It's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Um, and so in quantum physics, it is absolutely possible to do something in one place and spookily, magically change the state of something else in another place. And so if it were true somehow that our brains operated at a quantum level, and there's a fascinating area of study called quantum neuroscience, where people are looking at this, then if there were some part of your neurons in your brain that were entangled with particles outside your body at infinite distance, mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe uh, you're made up of a water molecule that back in the day had a certain electron that got peeled off, you know, and it went out into outer space and it's still in your brain. So there's part of you in your brain that's entangled with part outside I mean, it's getting a little far-fetched, but who knows? So the yeah. point is that it is theoretically possible, or putting it another way, it is not impossible that when you think thoughts, it changes physically the world around you due to quantum entanglement. Now, why is this not just a weird, horrible idea? <laughs> Typically, in quantum science, they say that when the quantum system interacts with the environment, it loses its quantum pureness. It, you have a wave function collapse, something that's in multiple places at once, all of a sudden is only in one place. Okay. And that's a collapse of the wave function if it interacts with the outside world. And a human brain is pretty messy from that. It's pretty warm. It's at 98.6 degrees, mm -hmm. give or take. Uh, it's got a lot of heat. It's got a lot of mechanical. So maintaining quantum isolation in the way that we think of it would not seem to be possible. Mm -hmm. However, plant biologists who have looked at photosynthesis have concluded that the only way to get the quantum efficiencies from capturing a photon of light and turning it into energy is if quantum phenomena are going on that are that equivalent to the way transistors work is through quantum tunneling. Remember I said that a particle can be in two places at once. So right. When you have a semiconductor, some of the electrons are simultaneously across a non-conducting barrier. Okay. And that's why they call it a semiconductor. And that property of quantum tunneling is what has enabled the digital revolution. So then you come back to plants and you say, well, plants appear to do something like quantum tunneling with photosynthesis. And that's at kind of the same temperatures and the messiness of a human brain. Mm-hmm. So we have an existence proof that quantum effects are important in biology. So it's, again, it's, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying it's not impossible from our understanding of quantum physics that you could be influencing things outside of your brain with your brain due to quantum effects such as entanglement.
And so that's a very long way of saying what the article was about. <laughs> well, it's like a, a poltergeist would be considered someone who's using telekinesis, whether they know it or not. But yeah, that's very interesting. And I mean, you talk about echolocation. You know, when we hear that, we think about usually bats probably trying to, you know, find insects flying through the air and stuff like that. But people can do that too, right? Yeah, people can. And in fact, when you get a creepy feeling someone's watching you or something, mm-hmm. um, there is a um, sound shadow that is created when someone starts walking behind you. Mm-hmm. They absorb acoustic energy that doesn't hit you. And you know that your brain is good at recognizing negative space. Mm-hmm. So it's un- it's part of your lizard brain that wants to stay alive. That There's some really primal circuits that look for that. Or also they look for um, absence of noise. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the jungle movie when all the birds go quiet and yeah. someone says, it's quiet. And then someone else says, yes, too quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that means there's a bad predator. And they, that happened to me in Iraq. Um, I used to drive from Camp Victory Camp Victory at Bayap to the Green Zone in Baghdad every day. Mm. And, you know, we were worried about IEDs, roadside bombs. Of course. And so we were hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling my driver to slam on the brakes and turn around and go across the divider and turn back. And since, you know, it's kind of military, right? And I was a senior person. He didn't question me. He just did it. Right. And then later someone on the same road a few minutes later got hit with an id pretty much where we were going and i was just my heart was racing and i didn't know why i told him to do that i heard my voice telling him to do that at the same time he did i didn't know why i did it it just came out of me and then i thought about it i went back i said stop and i kind of collected myself and he said why did you do that and i said because there are kids playing soccer in that dirt lot every day and they weren't there today. And I just realized that I realized that my lizard brain picked up on that before my uh, conscious brain did because that's survival. Right. And so, uh, you know, those are, um, I think examples of, uh, of some of the phenomena we're talking about. It seems like ESP or, maybe intuition or um, other other learning processes are, are, are to, you know, will account for it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, so I've had my own experiences like that. That's amazing. Oh. I mean, that's, I can't imagine what it would feel like to know that you were, you know, just feet away from being blown up. That's, it's got to be life-changing for you. Well, no, not in Iraq. I mean, I mean, we got mortar and rocket fire every night. And so it's kind of, I don't know. There's something happens to you when you get into a combat zone where it's not like you might think that you're constantly worried about dying because it's like, it's like, okay, yeah. So what else is new? Gotcha. You know, uh, now what does get you is when you see people who have been, you know, blown up or shot up or something. And I used to take medevac flights to Ramstein with these kids in the back. And more than anything that got to me, the, the visceral suffering of those people. But we don't have to get into that. But I, I guess it all becomes normal after a while. And that's not a good thing necessarily. But I guess that's something that you just need if you're going to be there. Your brain's like, this is the only way it's going to work. So, Well, just to wrap it up, 
people who've been there the shortest time are the safest because they haven't habituated to it and they're hyper vigilant. That's mm -hmm. like I was when I first got there. You know, if someone was talking instead of their eyes out the car with their weapon out, I said, hey, stop that. You know, look for look for, you know, snipers or blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, after I was there for a long time, it's just like, oh, you know, I became one of those complacent people. So, you know, strangely, you're safer being with neophytes than with experienced people in some ways. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And I definitely see that, you know, becoming accustomed to it or the thought of it it's not exactly the same thing but at boeing and maybe this doesn't need to go on the podcast but i remember being sent to uh scott's well to phoenix the boeing facilities in mesa and i was going to talk to them about the apaches they were they were ordering some new equipment whatever i had to be involved and i had to approve it mm -hmm. but I remember walking by one of the bays where they were doing repairs and there was a black hawk in there that was just mm -hmm. riddled with bullet holes. Mm. And it was it really struck me, you know, what yeah. these things go through. I mean it, it didn't matter that, you know, I had just flown to Seattle to do something and then I was in Charleston for a while for something else and mo you know, it's all military uh weaponry and aircraft and I had just walked through the Apache production facility talking about how we were designing things and why we needed certain pieces of equipment, but seeing one of those things riddled with bullets kind of brought me back to, Oh yeah, that's right. This is, this is what we're doing this for. Right. I think so much about cybersecurity. Like I said, when I thought about AI, one of the first things I thought of was, you know, an AI that's really determined and kind of creative in a digital way might be able to crack attack lane. And that's terrifying. Now, you wrote a lot about uh, brain phenomena that, you know, people don't believe is, is real or possible. So can you tell us a little bit about mirror touch synesthesia? Well, there are uh, some people who you could call them empaths, I guess, mm -hmm. that um, synesthesia for your audience is a cross wiring of one sensory modality to another. So, yeah. you know... Kandinsky was a painter who heard images and um, he painted what he heard. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, you can tell the synesthete because if you ask them what color is the number two, they'll tell you instantly, you know, mm. it's yellow and, you know, seven is red and, you know, and this is automatic. It's not um, something that they learn or develop. It's just how their brains are wired and they don't, the funny thing is a lot of these people don't know that everyone isn't that way. Right. And uh, so there are some people who have what's called um, kind of empathic synesthesia where like someone else will get hurt on the arm and they'll hurt in their own arm. Mm -hmm. And the neuroscience of that probably has to do with mirror neurons. And it's a fascinating thing about perception Perception is very much an active motor act. It is not passive. It's not like your ears are a microphone and your eyes are cameras. Mm -hmm. No. Your ears are much more like a sound synthesizer and your eyes much like a, you know, a NVIDIA graphics computer. In okay. that the act of creating, recreating the sensory information is the act of being conscious of it and perceiving it. So... When we look at other people, you mentioned the example of a kid learns by spatial expression to not do certain things. Right. 
And the mirror neurons are, you know, one way that happens in that when they see a person frown, the neurons in their own brain that frown activate and they mm. feel the feelings. There's a famous uh, phenomenon in psychology um, where uh, you, you, you don't actually cry because you're sad. You're sad because you're crying. Hmm. And in this phenomena, you can, like, if you take your finger and put it in your mouth and bite on your finger sideways so that you're smiling, you'll feel happier. Oh, that's true. Or if you frown, you'll feel sadder. And so it's really our emotions are the opposite the way we think they are. And so when, when, when one of these synesthetes looks at someone, you know, the mirror neurons in their brain, or it's as if they are doing that. The motor mm. cortex where it causes frowning in the parts of the limbic system that get involved in negative emotion, they're actually experiencing what the person is experiencing. And we all do it to some degree mm -hmm. where we look at something and go, oh, that hurts. You know, that would hurt if we see someone hit <laughs> on a football field. Sure. Uh, but the mirror synesthetes, they take it to an extreme and they actually, it causes them pain. You told mm. a fascinating story about someone who was i don't know if you would call him an interrogator but you said that he didn't he didn't actually do the interrogations that he watched somebody doing the interrogations to tell if he was lying yeah um when i was in iraq and afghanistan i hung out with what we call humanters human mm -hmm. intelligence and military human intelligence that do the interrogations of prisoners detainees and um you know, one of the things uh, I was working on when I was at DNI, uh, I had the defense science, I mean, the intelligence science board that reported to me, and I asked them to look into the issue of uh, kind of deception detection with technology. Because it turns out humans are not that good at it. Um, but to the degree that they are good at it, the, the, the guys I talked to said, one of the skilled guys said, when he's watching an interrogation, he never looks at the detainee he looks at the interrogator to see their body language and that is the best index of deception and the fascinating thing is the people who are interrogating and exhibiting these body language behaviors aren't consciously aware that their bodies are doing it hmm. and so i did write a whole series of articles on the way to understand what other people are feeling and thinking is to examine your own feelings because we do have these mirror neurons and sometimes we tune them out. Interesting. So we're kind of like a tuning fork. And when you think about it, it makes sense. We're a social species. You know, how we get along with and understand and anticipate the actions of others in our species, in our herd, our flock, our tribe, whatever, that's survival. You know, you, you don't read something right and you could die. <laughs> so um, we, our brains are very tuned to this there's a guy that i know well matthew uh, lieberman who's a professor at ucla who actually started off life as a social scientist a social psychologist mm -hmm. and he's now a neuroscientist and he looks at the neuroscience of uh emotion and theory of mind you know where in the brain and how in the brain do we imagine what another person is thinking or feeling interesting are there do you think there are people i'm um... I apologize for bringing this back to AI, but <laughs> are, are we looking into ways to mimic that kind of activity in AI? Yes. Um, at MIT Media Lab, there's been for 
a decade or more, an initiative called Affective Computing. And uh, Ross Picard and others there working with her at MIT Media Lab have been working on exactly that. And they put it into products like these, you know, companion toy slash robots that uh, not only sense emotion, but can deliver emotion. Hmm. So you're saying that, uh, I don't know, you're talking about the, the sort of human lie detectors. I know that's not what you called them, but that's kind of what they were. Is that, would you say that that's reasonably effective compared with what we can do with technology? Cause I'm, I none think of it is, I, none of it's very effective. Okay. Cause I think most people would probably think of the show lie to me. Yeah. It's mostly BS. Yeah, it's based on the Paul Ekman group, but I don't know how effective they are. I don't know a lot about them. Well, I know Paul Ekman quite well because when I was at ODNI, I talked to him a lot on this deception detection thing using micro expressions. And he told me some. I'm getting jealous of the people you know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he said something interesting to me. He said, the thing about micro expressions and emotions is I know what my wife is feeling. But why? I have no clue. <coughs> and I'm always wrong when I try to guess why she's angry or happy or whatever. <laughs> right. Are you upset with me? No, I just had Taco Bell for lunch and now I don't feel well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. Um, but I would say that um, I have actually recently, for certain reasons, been looking into this whole phenomena of human lie detectors and so forth. And here's the bottom line from what I can tell is that people who think they're really good at it, like cops and interrogators are actually not that good at it when you do controlled studies. Not Um, surprising. Yeah. And so I think we're very far and certainly polygraphs don't do it. Um, There are certain narrow cases where you can do it with an MRI. For example, Mm. with an MRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging, where you can actually visualize brain activity in different parts of the brain, you can tell the difference after a while if someone has seen something before or not. Is it the first time they're seeing it or not the first time? You know, for most people, you get a very different kind of signature. Um, And if you have a suspect and you say, well, have you ever been to Bajur, Pakistan? They say no. And then you put them in MRI and show them pictures of Bajur and their body, it lights up, you know, uh, like they've seen it, then you, yeah, they're probably lying. Mm-hmm. But that's very narrow, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that it can do certain things like that, like with cocaine addiction. The, the, the brains of people who are cocaine addicts just light up very differently in fMRIs than uh, when they see pictures of drug paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of heroin addicts. Um, yeah. And you can, so you can tell whether if someone's an addict or not, or has been. I also think it's interesting that at least in the TV show, Lie to Me. Now, I don't know if Paul Ekman himself believes this, but they talk about people who've gone through trauma in their past, in particular abuse as children, are hypervigilant and they make good uh, candidates to perform that kind of work. I'm curious if what you would think about that, because from what I've read, when that happens, when, when essentially when kids go through some kind of adverse experience, it tends to limit activity in the prefrontal cortex. And you would see in an MRI, 
or an fMRI, more uh, activity towards the more primitive parts of the brain. You'd see the amygdala lighting up a lot yeah. more. Well, now you just kind of stepped on a landmine as far as I'm concerned. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because you, you hit on a pet peeve of mine. And I don't mean this to be critical. Sure. Um, there's a tendency of a lot of people in neuroscience and in the kind of public uh, media press to be reductionistic. Well, this part of the brain does X and this part of the brain does Y and people are left brain or their right brain. And here's the honest truth. What we know about the brain is one billionth of one trillionth of one quadrillionth of a percent of what we don't know. Hmm. We don't really even know that action potentials and graded potentials are the whole story of how the brain processes information. There's, you know, Rakeley, the guy who invented PET scan, told me he's seen some really weird stuff like volume conduction during peristaltic waves that had nothing to do with synaptic connections. And so I think that it's the height of hubris. And I don't mean to criticize you. It's really, like I say, a pet peeve of mine. Mm. We're, we're very arrogant, we neuroscientists, uh, claiming what we know when really we don't know squat. Okay. You know, here's the thing. If you took a, if you took a computer, like an NVIDIA computer, and you pointed a thermal camera at it and had it do different tasks and watch what heated up, when you did different graphics tasks, floating point operations or whatever, you could reach certain crude conclusions about the functional architecture of that board. But how crude would they be compared to what's really going on? That's a really good and way of looking at it. Yeah, and that's what we have with fMRI. They are useful up to a point, and I would say a very small point. Hmm. And so to me, um, you didn't intend to do it, I know, but... When you say things like, well, their frontal cortex or their amygdala, the brain is kind of holographic in that at the one hand, there's specialization and things specialize. And on the other hand, everything does everything. It's holographic. And both are true. And so uh, um, I think that I would rephrase the issue of uh, kids who were uh, abused. Here's what we know from scientific research. Mm -hmm. They have uh, their corticosteroid pituitary axis, by which I mean stress hormones. And the targets of stress hormones, like the hippocampus, where we have short-term memories, and various parts of the prefrontal cortex, as you pointed out, like orbitofrontal cortex that sustains our mood and regulates our mood, those are severely damaged in abused children. And it's a lifetime. They never recover. And so you have a lot more anxiety and depression. You have uh, a lot more, you know, other kinds of mood disorders, uh, schizoaffective disorders, things of that kind, uh, substance abuse, all of it. And you can see the brain damage, not just in the fMRI, but you can see it morphologically. The left prefrontal orbital frontal cortex and the hippocampus are shrunk in people who have suffered abuse. And the amygdala tends to be hypertrophied. And um, so um, I think that the safe thing to say about people who have suffered abuse of any kind is that they, uh, they dysregulate stress hormones and that they do have a kind of brain damage from the effect, which can be seen actually structurally. 
Mm. Um, and not in everybody, but in, sure. in a number of people. And the more severe the abuse, and there are individual differences too. Some people can take it more than others and so forth. But um, so when it comes to the issue of, back to the question you asked about hypervigilance, um, I can see where that might be true because these people tend to be very anxious and therefore motivated yeah. to look for things. Well, I and I really appreciate your response. I, I don't take any of it personally. Uh, I was hoping that you would elaborate on the issue like that, but I guess kind of the question I was driving at are, it. there are two issues. One, with, with that research in particular, it seems, I mean, this is a very simplistic view of it from what little I've read. It seems that they've identified a difference, you know, some statistically significant difference between the brain of somebody who's experienced abuse and someone who hasn't. And they've concluded that, that, that it means that there's something wrong, which if there's a high correlation between this brain pattern and abuse, then sure, that means there's something wrong. But I, but I think that my question might have, I could have phrased it better. I could have written my prompt better that does less activity in the prefrontal cortex and more activity in the lizard brain kind of cause these responses like your avoidance of that IED where people might be vigilant and they might react to something, but they don't necessarily consciously know why they're doing it. And so then kind of their postmortem of the situation, they may not be able to tell you exactly why they felt that this detainee was lying and this one was telling the truth. Yeah. You know, I don't, the short answer is I really don't know the answer to the question. And I would be guessing um, about, you know, do abused people make better lie detectors? Um, my guess is probably yes, because their type one and type two errors have shifted. You know, yeah. that when we're very anxious and worried about the world, we tend to react to smaller threshold things because we are more fearful. And so we will have They'll be better at saying, yes, that person is lying, but they'll have a lot of false alarms saying people are lying who aren't lying. If you follow me, they'll have more hits, but also more false alarms. Yeah. Yeah. Your tolerance for false positives changes. Right. That's right. That's right. So I think that they will have more hits on who's lying, but their what we call discriminability or sensitivity is not going to be greater, I think. But I don't know. I mean, the bottom line is I gotta, I'm got i going to be different than AI and tell you I don't really know. <laughs> You're not going to just hallucinate and make it up. So you talk about some of the thoughts and feelings that we have actually take place outside our brain. Like you talk about, you know, someone having a gut feeling or I know this in my heart. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We'll find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Yeah, this is one of my favorite subjects. We have uh, the central nervous system, which includes the brain and the spinal cord, where, you know, most of the action really in the brain is where thoughts and feelings are thought to occur. Mm. But we now know from what I was talking about, the, the name for it is the James Lang theory, very old theory that says we've got it backwards. We're uh, sad because we're crying, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that there is a, a theory in psychology called the emotional primacy theory, which says that 
emotions and emotional reactions are far faster than cognitive thoughts. And for a good reason, because emotion is what causes us to run or attack, which right. there isn't time to ponder. Speed mm. matters. And so it's also true that those circuits are more primitive. And when I say those circuits, I got to be very careful. It isn't accurate to say that we feel emotion in the amygdala or the limbic system, and we don't feel any of it in our cortex or, you know, any other part. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think we know. Um, but generally speaking, we do know that people process emotions much faster. And there's tremendous evidence for the James Lang theory that the kind of motor behavior of the emotion, the tears, the tightening of the gut, the clenching of the jaw, that that precedes the perception of the feeling. That the physical, that, that feeling, it's funny that language really knows more than you think it does. The term feeling is literal. Mm -hmm. It's not like a feeling only in our head. It is a physical feeling. I mean, if you think about any emotion that you have, whether it's hunger or anger or thirst or horniness or whatever, mm -hmm. you can map it onto a part of your body. <laughs> right? And sure. it's not accidental, right? And so um, in our book, The Listening Cure, with my wife, she really wrote the book, and I just added a few chapters on the neuroscience. She's a physician mm -hmm. and a mind-body medicine expert. And these are really all her ideas, but she, you know, she talks about the body having its own voice and having its own control as if you know, it's only an illusion that you are an individual alone in your head. You've actually got this other character living with you called your body that has a mind of its own. And let's get into that. What do we mean by that? Mm -hmm. um, if you look at your enteric nervous system, it's the ganglia and the nerves and the neurons that innervate your viscera, your mm -hmm. stomach, your esophagus, your, your intestines, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and, you know, you could also throw in your pancreas and your gallbladder because they're part of your digestive system also. Um, at, there are more neurons there than in the cerebral cortex of a cat. Mm. Okay. So how smart is a cat? Pretty smart. They're pretty smart. So your gut is literally as smart as a cat or perhaps even a monkey, like a new world monkey. Mm -hmm. We're talking 750 million neurons, something on that order. Mm. Um, the whole human brain is 90 billion. But like I say, you know, something with the intelligence of a cat or a dog lives literally in your gut. And it creates all kinds of feelings. And your gut bacteria are also there. And they have a big role to play in your feelings and emotions. And there's a very interesting interplay between your gut bacteria and other organisms there like archaea and fungi and so forth that secrete neurotransmitters and react mm -hmm. to neurotransmitters. So there's a dialogue going on between the neurons in your gut, the bugs in your gut, of which there are 10 times more than all the cells in your body, Right. not to even mention your brain. <clears throat> and so um, <clears throat> I think it is literally the case that some emotional processes actually don't happen inside the brain. They start perhaps in the gut. And again, our language, we say gut feeling, mm -hmm. you know, we had a gut intuition. Mm -hmm. It's literal. Right. And then we have other language where we say, I know in my heart, the heart mm -hmm. itself has an incredibly complex nervous system. 
that controls the rhythm and the heart and the sequence of the beating of the ventricles and the, uh, you know, atrium and so forth and regulates things with different, you know, levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide and so forth. And um, your heart also uh, has a very sophisticated nervous system, not as big as your gut, but big. And so um, I think that it is entirely possible that some processing and the origin of some emotions actually do not originate in the brain. Have you heard stories of people that, uh, like, I heard a story on Art Bell a long time ago where a woman had gotten a heart transplant. And it was from someone who, I can't remember if they were pushed downstairs or fell downstairs, but after this heart transplant, you know, they don't tell you who the family is that it's coming from or anything about them. It's very hush-hush. And she was saying that she just kept having dreams about falling downstairs ever since she got this mm -hmm. heart transplant. And is it possible that it could store memory and then the next person to receive it could, you know, not not necessarily everybody that receives a, you know, a heart transplant or whatever, but in theory, someone that, you know, like this situation where she got a heart transplant and then she started having these memories. Is that possible? Yes, I would say it is. And there are two avenues of that. The first and most likely, if it's true, is epigenetics. So this is a big, big deal now in genetics and in behavior where here's an example. If your grandparents conceived your parents during a time of famine when food was short, you're much more likely to be obese. And they now know that the reason is that certain, there's up and down regulation of certain metabolic uh, genes mm -hmm. and that that's passed from parent to child in the form of epigenetics, which is, we, we call it methylation and alkylation and stuff. And it's basically the turning on and off. It isn't the passage of genes. It's the passage of mechanisms that control the turning on and off of genes. And that is passed down somehow. And I'm not sure they, someone knows, I'm not aware of exactly how it's done, but it is done. So um, we have this metagenetic, uh, epigenetic uh, information, which does control behavior like eating. Mm -hmm. And there are others too, uh, stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So things that we thought were genetic, maybe actually are not, except they're epigenetic. So I could very much imagine there are certain epigenetic signals that get turned on in that heart uh, and then get pumped everywhere, literally, wow. including the brain and the gut and everything else. So through epigenetics, I could absolutely see that that might be possible. Whether that's actually going on, I don't know. But now we get into some really weird stuff. Okay. There was this guy named Ungar. I think it was at the University of Houston. Mm -hmm. And he started by training planaria flatworms to run mazes. And then mm -hmm. he'd kill the trained worms, grind them up and feed them to other worms. And he found that the other worms ran the mazes much faster, having been fed the, the ones who learned it before them. Wow. And so then he did the same thing with rats. And he, you know, trained rats to avoid the lighter part of the uh, maze and go to the darker part or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And then he ground them up and fed them to other rats. And sure enough, their time to acquisition, their learning curve was much steeper. 
meaning they, they, they learned it faster. Right. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, that research got criticized tremendously, but I read it. And honestly, as a brain scientist, a hardcore bench scientist, I don't think the science was bad. I think he controlled for a lot of things. I think he did good uh, statistics. I can't find any methodological flaws in his work. Now, how that happens, who knows, you know? And so there is some evidence that if you eat someone, you you get some of their memories. That's that's really interesting. You also might get you also might get Kuru. <laughs> well, you see, this is a fascinating thing about um, there's a Stephen King book out now called Holly about this nutrition professor who kidnaps and eats people because he believes this. And he cites these, this research, and it's true, by the way, um, chimps in, in particular will kill monkeys and other chimps and eat the brain first. The, mm -hmm. the brain is the prized food. Yeah. And humans have done this too, which is where prion disease, you know, come from. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. Um, uh, maybe you can't eat your words, but you can eat someone else's. And <laughs> Has Russia run this experiment with humans? I'm just kidding. We know they have. Um, <laughs> so, that's, that's some amazing stuff. Hopefully it'll never be tested on humans. I, I think that rats are about as far as I'd be willing to go with testing that theory, but you know, I, I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the chimps and, and they're, it, it, it is a weird thing that that is, you know, what they, what they do. That's just like, yep, we got this little one. We're going to eat its brain. It, it's a, a weird thing because you wouldn't think it would be the most nutritious part. You would think they would start with the most nutritious, you know, part of the body. But I don't know. Maybe the brain is the most nutritious. What do I know? Well, it's certainly high in fat. <sighs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have a, my own personal experience, and this is completely unscientific. When I was a kid, I used to love to play with toy pistols. Mm -hmm. You know, and I do little things like you see the gunmen on TV do special fancy draw tricks, and then they twirl the gun around and do this. Sure. And I always felt very comfortable with a weapon in my hand and very good at doing that, almost with no training. Mm -hmm. And I, my dad saw me doing it. He goes, who taught you that? And I said, I, I, no one taught me that. I watched it on TV. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, <clears throat> and also I had to carry a weapon um, and was real, really good shot with mm -hmm. not a lot of training. And of course, who knows why, right? Well, he said, that's funny. Your fa His father, my grandfather, had been a vigilante during the gold rush days in Alaska. Wow. And he got really good at those kind of gun twirling tricks. <clears throat> and he, he, he was the same way. And I went, gee, did they get passed down, you know, through epigenetics? Who knows? So that's, I wouldn't call that at all scientific, but who knows? Well, that's what we're all about. Who knows? I mean, we, we try and keep our mind open. How much of your brain do you actually use? Yeah, I mean, people say, oh, if you could use 100% of your brain, you would be able to fly and do all this amazing stuff. But we don't just use 10% of our brain, right? No, um, if you use 100%, you're on acid. <laughs> you're having a heavy-duty trip. Gotcha. Because um, well, you'd be activating, very... you'd sort of be activating functions within your brain that you didn't need at that point, right? Well, I'll just give you a story about that. 
All right. Hubel and Weasel won the Nobel Prize for their work in neuroscience of visual perception. And when I was a grad student, they were gods. You know, they did all the work on brain plasticity and how we do pattern recognition and all this, do the work on cats mainly and monkeys. Uh-huh. And somehow I ended up having dinner with them, which is like, you know, having dinner with God. It was like I was so awestruck to be uh-huh. at their table. And sure. I had the temerity to ask them. I said, and Ursula Drager was there, their, their postdoc. And I said, um, okay, at this table, if anyone on the planet should know where this, you only use 10% of your brain comes from, it should be at this table. <laughs> and they looked at each other and agreed that, yes, that's true. If anyone would know, they would know. Right. Because they're, you know, they're geniuses. And they accepted that they were geniuses. Um, and so... Uh, I said, okay, so is it true? And where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And they all kind of drew blanks and they said, we don't know. And if anyone would know, we would, and we don't know. And mm-hmm. I said, could it be Lashley? And they said, it could be. And Lashley did these experiments where he trained animals to do things and then tried to take out different parts of the brain uh... to see where the memory lived, the so-called engram. And uh, he couldn't find a place. And so he had this theory that the brain is holographic, that memories are stored everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the theory is, well, if they're stored everywhere, you're not using them all the time because you don't need them all if you if you can take out part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. probably where it came from. Um, but here's the thing. Evolution does not favor waste. You right. burn 25 to 30% of your calories are burnt in your brain. Mm-hmm. And when you think of how much of our behavior it is motivated by conserving calories and consuming calories we're lazy and we eat donuts mm-hmm. um evolution says you ain't gonna waste that brain power mm-hmm. and so i think it's not only bs but total bs that we only use 10 percent because we'd be a fossil if that were true yeah well there you go you don't have excess capacity every time you have a capability it's at the expense of something else well, we've got just a couple minutes here. You've been so gracious with your time. We really appreciate it. But I have to get one more in. How to spot, how to spot real ghosts. How do we do oh. that? Well, again, again, I'm not going to accuse myself. <laughs> but. Um... Well, you know what? It's, it's not clickbait because you're, you know, you're presenting scientific research and stuff like that it's clickbait if it's somebody that's like check out this alien that came on my front porch last night so it's not clickbait yeah well i've written about aliens too by the way and i'm on a, i'm going to be on a tv show on a and e next year on uh, the you know alien files reopened i'm one of the characters on there wow um uh, well um it's about uh after images and ghost images okay where uh the way your sensory brain works is that one part opposes the other so Mm -hmm. if you stare at something purple for a long time and then you stare at a blank white screen you're going to see uh you know green or cyan and so forth and so we've all seen after images Mm -hmm. and so but i talk about you know all kinds of ghost images uh visual but there are also some phantom images sensory. Uh, I wrote for Discover Magazine about Mm -hmm. this phenomenon where if you take someone's forearm and hide them 
hide it from them visually so they can't see it behind a barrier. And you've got a fake Halloween caught in the door type arm, rubber mm -hmm. arm, and you put it where they can see it. <clears throat> and you tap the real hand and the rubber hand at the same time where they can see it. After about three minutes and quite a few people, they will feel it in the rubber hand. Wow. In other words, the feeling seems to be coming from the rubber, not from their real hand. Uh-huh. Because of this, the way the brain gets wired up with the plasticity. Um, and, and let me tell you, I've had that done to me. It's one of the weirdest damn things you'll ever experience in your life. Huh. Where you're feeling that rubber hand and it's yeah. the rubber hand, not your hand. It is weird. So that was the kind of stuff that I talked about, how phantoms in the brain. And uh, the real expert on this is VK Ramachandran, who mm -hmm. came up with this experiment and who talks about phantom pain okay. and where phantom pain comes from and where tinnitus comes from, mm -hmm. which is the ringing in your ears, which is a phantom pain, as it were, in your auditory cortex. Okay. Huh. Well, I've got... Uh, really two more questions if we have time. Uh, first thinking about synesthesia, I've, I've seen a Ted talk previously that talked about that Nikola Tesla might've had it. I even think one of my students had it when I was a graduate assistant, I was teaching a statistics class 400 level. And one of the students, for some reason, I've always remembered her name, even though I was not good with names. But I would notice during tests, she would tap on her desk and she would tap in these certain patterns. And there was a day that the actual professor was in there with me and we were sitting there and I told him to just watch her. She does this every time. And we were kind of trying to figure out what it was. And I remember on the elevator going back up to the offices, we thought maybe she has some form of synesthesia. And I'm wondering how common it is for the engineers that you work with in your government work to be affected by some advantageous form of synesthesia. Hmm. Well, um, I wouldn't call it synesthesia necessarily. In my book, The Spy and Mask Station, I talk about Charlie Gandy, who had this amazing ability to visualize radio uh, electromagnetic radiation. He was dyslexic and he couldn't read. But, oh, my God, you know, I talked to him about we worked together after I left NSA on various RF projects. And the way he talked about it, it I said, Gandhi, you can see it in your brain, can't you? You can actually see the near field, the Fresnel component of the EM wave. You can see it exciting, you know, dipoles in dielectrics in the near field, can't you? You see that. Like it's vibrating these things. Yeah. Doesn't everybody? And <laughs> when I was at Disney, <laughs> I mean, he actually saw in his head the way electromagnetic radiation worked in the near field and far field. He saw constructive interference in the far field in his head. He saw it. And he couldn't describe it, but I knew he saw it. And so there are people like that. And I don't know if it's synesthesia. There's this very famous Imagineer called Joe Rohde, um, who, when I was there, we created a, basically a holodeck so that you could see what a theme park would look like before you built it. Right. And I brought him in and I showed it to him. It's called a cave, you know, 
you guys know what that is. Yeah. Boeing had one as well. I'm familiar. Yeah. But uh, we did one of the early ones. Um, and um, we used it to design Disney's California Adventure. We created the park completely in CG and we put artificial humans in it with, you know, you know, the stuff we used in the feature animation to do stampeding and stuff like that. <clears throat> and so I, I showed him and I said, look, you know, you can know exactly what the theme park is going to look like from every guest perspective in any position. And he goes, well, that's stupid. After he saw it, we were so proud of it. He goes, that's really dumb. And I said, well, I was very deflated. I said, why? And he said, well, can't you just look at an architectural elevation and reconstruct the 3D image from it and put your mind's eye anywhere and know exactly what it's going to look like from that position? And I looked at him and I said, uh, no, <laughs> I don't know anybody who can do that. He goes, oh, I thought everybody could do that. <laughs> yeah, kind of like, so, uh, kind of like Jordy since you brought up Star Trek where he's trying yeah. to describe what he sees with his visor and they're saying, oh, well, data looks like this and you look like that and magnetic fields look like this. They go, you can see that? And he goes, can't everybody? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing about Joe Rody. What made him great was that he could, he had this incredible uh, ability to synthesize images in his head. And of course, Beethoven, if you look at the Ninth Symphony, he composed it while deaf. And that tells you for 100% sure he could literally hear the symphony in his head, the way we hear it in our ears. For yeah. sure. I mean, and that's part of why Beethoven was Beethoven. He could do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would definitely tell you there are people who are incredibly visual or incredibly auditory who just have experiences and abilities that are far beyond normal humans. All right. Well, my last question in your TEDx NASA talk, you talked about you know, the strange ideas that people have or conspiracy theories or however you put it, you know, a couple of these are going to prove to be true, like germ theory. And I'm curious if you have any ideas as to what we're going to find out in the future. Any, you know, I always think about the way that you, people generally seem to be able to tell when somebody's looking at them, even when you know, you can, you kind of get this feeling somebody's looking at me and you turn and look and maybe they are. And I feel like eventually science will be able to explain what that is. What is the mechanism that makes that happen? Do you have any, any uh, future predictions for things that are currently sort of in the realm of paranormal or conspiracy <laughs> or just like the, yeah. the heart transplant thing that you can transplant sort of part of a person's personality or memories through that? Well, you that may be able been, to, yeah. Well, but I mean, there's some potential for a scientific explanation where before... That's right. Stories like yeah. that would be pretty much just paranormal. Um, well, I think it, here's, the, here's the fascinating thing about that. Um, it gets back to the way the human brain imagines and it creates. Uh, if I asked you to shut your eyes and imagine a color you'd never seen before... You can't do it because you don't have the cognitive building blocks to assemble that visual image in your head. But if you saw it, you'd recognize it. And so the way um, breakthroughs happen is almost 100% of the time, the biggest breakthroughs are, by definition, unintended serendipitous discoveries. Because 
you know, if you thought about it beforehand, someone else thought about it and a lot of people were working on it and you're not going to make the breakthrough. It's the thing you stumble on is it's, oh my God, that's genius. I never thought of that after you started doing something else. And so um, I think that that is why the, uh, the really true breakthroughs before the fact are viewed as crazy because they, they all uh, do something that was previously thought to be impossible. And it turns out, you know, the impossible is overrated. <laughs> A lot of things do turn out to be possible. <laughs> and uh, so <clears throat> I think that um, the, it, it, I think that the, the next really big scientific breakthroughs uh, are by definition going to be things that right now sound crazy. Because if they didn't sound crazy, you'd have a zillion people working on it. It would be more evolutionary than revolutionary. Um, so what would be some examples of that? You just look at what I said in my TED Talk is, if you want to look into the future, find as many wacko ideas by people who have credible credentials. Meaning they know what they're doing and they're smart and have a track record. And if you look at a thousand of those, one or two of them are going to be true. Right, And they may see, and I'll tell you, I'm now working on another UFO series for another thing. And so I've been deeply looking into a, a NASA program on alternative propulsion. That's like got to be an order of magnitude better than anything. They don't want it. They, they want two things in this program. One is physics doesn't say it's impossible. And two, if it worked, it would be at least 10 X faster acceleration than what they can do now with chemical and even ion engines. And so I've been looking at some of these really wacko ideas like mock field generators that are relativistic, create relativistic effects with piezo. Um, and I think when I look at that stuff and it isn't impossible and the people doing it are very smart and the physics doesn't say it can't be done or even warp engines are another example of that. Uh, they, they work on the principle of negative energy, which we don't think physics says can't be done. We don't know that it can, but we don't know that it can't either. And it'll be something like that. And, you know, I think uh, propulsion would be one area to look in the space propulsion uh, field. Um, I certainly think genetic engineering, if you look at CRISPR, you know, we talked about augmented humans, you know, neural implants are going to be nothing compared to CRISPR. You basically dial up in a compiler what kind of human you want, and CRISPR compiles it, and you get, you know, the, the compiled machine code is a different kind of human. Um, we already can do that in a lot of species, and it is being done by other actors in the world in human embryos. And so I think that there's going to be some enormous breakthrough in what what's next for hu the human race hmm. in terms of Moore's law now jumping over into biology and you're going to see human 1.0, human 2.0, human 3.0. That would be my prediction. Wow. I like that. I like the idea of, uh, I don't know. I guess you mentioning warp engines and kind of this, you know, these Star Trek references, I'm hoping for a positive future like that, where we understand the implications of genetic engineering and how to handle it responsibly where we have AI. I remember the original series. They had the computer could run the entire ship if they wanted it to. 
but they still did it themselves. They wanted to keep the things that kept them human because if they lost that, they would become something else. They could lose what the Federation stood for. And I think, I think that's something we should be focused on, keeping our humanity, preserving our humanity alongside these developments and what makes us who we are. Well, we'd like to preserve the good parts and maybe not the bad parts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's going on in Gaza and Ukraine and, and American politics, you know. Yeah, human, maybe not. Yeah. yeah. Not I the mean, things I that drive us to violence, but the things that drive us to creativity and art. Well, you know, the problem with that is, and again, I apologize for getting metaphysical and unscientific, but, you know, Lovelock and his Gaia theory, where what's alive on Earth is all living organisms, is one organism. Sure. That, you know, our toenail is to our liver as a planaria is to us. We are all part of a larger organism. And there's evidence for this in Lovelock's work <clears throat> on, you know, how the, the planet acts to keep things within reasonable limits for life. And what that tells you is balance will be maintained. And with human overpopulation, uh, we're getting out of balance. And so you look at the evilness of humans, the, the, you know, the homicidalness of humans. It's a bad thing. And it is. But from the Earth's point of view, it's a negative feedback loop that keeps things in check. So you have to be really careful. Like, um, th there's a famous case of them uh, killing all the wolves in Wyoming. Right. And, and all the other... Yeah, the national parks yeah. got out of balance because there were no natural predators. That's right. And then so all the prey species started dying off and, and pest species started coming. And so the world is extremely nonlinear with many feedback loops. So, you know, if you were a purist, you'd say there is no such thing as good and evil. There's only what works. And what works in biology is negative feedback. And so to take that out of humans, you may end up the, with the planet that doesn't work anymore. Huh. You got to be careful because Mother Nature is wise. We get, she's had four billion years to figure this stuff out. <laughs> and for humans to mess with it, this is what Michael Crichton used to talk about. And he's right. You know, we, we use this power at our danger. You know, if I had to bet on the wisdom of Mother Nature versus humans, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah all right well do you have anything else that you you want to tell us about or do you want to just go in and tell us everywhere we can find you tell us about some of your amazing books by the way i think the spy in moscow station might get overlooked by some people because it's more of a uh i, I know you don't like the term spy but kind of a uh a, a spy book it's really cool, but give us a list of your books where they can find you. And okay, well, um, uh, I wrote Long Fuse Big Bang, and it's about the neuroscience of innovation. Um, I wrote a book with my wife, uh, The Listening Cure, which is about mind body medicine and the brain. I wrote Brain Safari, which is a book for families and kids, it's like brain entertainment, have fun with your brain. <laughs> I love it. Um, we wrote um, the Writing the Monster, Five Ways to Innovate Inside Bureaucracies, which is, again, also, it's really about the anthropology of innovation. Mm -hmm. That innovation is, above all, a social phenomenon. And people who don't get that fail. 
people who do get it are more often likely to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the bottom line. And then, yeah, I, I write a monthly blog for Psychology Today on the brain. And um, <clears throat> I have a new company that I'm doing where I'm doing high-tech magnetometers for ship repair. Wow. You've just got your hands uh, in everything. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's ADHD. <laughs> and lately I've been involved in UFOs and UAPs. Um, I've written about, and so is my wife, the Havana Syndrome. Oh, yeah. um, I have a lot of ideas about what that is, and I have consulted with the government on that topic. And um, let's just say I'm not happy about the official government position on that. Hmm. Um, and uh, by the way, when we talk about humans 2.0, I've already met them. It's called my wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's smarter than me. She's prettier than me. She's more athletic than me. She's an MD and a PhD. And uh, so there you go. Amazing. You absolutely killed it tonight. You have an open invitation. Whenever you want to come on and talk about anything, we will sit down and listen for sure. Yeah, this this was really fun. It's been fun for me, too. Uh, It was a very stimulating conversation. And I got to blather on and, uh, you know, uh, pontificate, which is always fun. (laughs) I feel like we I feel like we could do like 12 hours for a show but uh i don't know if i could stay up for all that though i need some sleep yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so all right well you'll be able to find links to everything in our notes and hopefully if you guys haven't done so while you're actually listening to the podcast you need to go and check out the website because there's all kinds of cool stuff and doctors impossible you can take a test to see how you rate on your sixth sense. I came up as a skeptic, but mm-hmm. yeah, but I, I consider myself a believer. So thanks so much for joining us tonight and you have a wonderful evening. Ryan, final thoughts. This is no offense to other guests, probably the most fun I've had. Although, uh, Dr. Macklin was pretty good too. It's that's that's a hard one, but this was really an interesting and fun discussion, and I'm glad that it didn't get too dark. You know, there there wasn't any real doom and gloom, even though he's coming at this from a military and sort of espionage related background. But he's also got a Disney background, so you can't be too dark and work for Disney. I don't think. Uh, no, you can absolutely be too dark and work for Disney. <laughs> was that a joke? <laughs> I inadvertently inadvertently i guess it was okay but man he's what a about great, you? well he's a great spokesperson for ai because he knows it inside and out he is willing to admit the things that he doesn't know and that other scientists and researchers don't know and he doesn't talk down to people I mean, he used a lot of technical terms, and I, I know that, you know, some people, including me, had, had trouble keeping up with some of that, but that's okay. That's why we're here. That's why you should be here, is to expand your mind a little bit and look into some exciting things that you hadn't thought about. And this man has just such a diverse background that I really enjoy 
hearing things from people who have multiple disciplines, from people who, you know, do different things. It's not just some guy in a lab coat that only cares about an algorithm. No, he's he's like, well, your brain can do this too. You can do this yourself. And oh, here's some cool stuff about, you know, that I learned in the military. And, and here's an example of something that happened in Iraq and, and just pulls from so many sources that it makes him super credible, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And I just uh, ordered one of his books. So <laughs> I'm probably going to end up reading all of them. I'm, but I'm going to start with The Spy in Moscow Station because I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. When you said that it was a. Uh, I mean, is it like a John le Carré novel? Like it's actually a spy thriller? It's no, it, I don't think so. It's not. It's not a. Or is it just no, more factual? It, it's very factual, but it's a lot of stories. Some of them uh, are still really stories. good. Yeah, yeah. If it's full of true stories, I'm in. Well, the true stories are often stranger than the novels, right? Yeah. And I mean, you get to hear stories from someone on the inside. And he's not giving away secrets or anything like that, but he's getting you as close as he can. Right. I mean, you can't expect somebody to come on here and be like, hey, reveal all the secrets you're not supposed to tell anybody. And, you know, he, he gets you as close as he can and says, that's all I can tell you. Not this is right. it. This is the only thing that happened, but this is all we can talk about. Yeah, and or I, I have to pick my that. words carefully here. And, and I respect that. All right. Well, I guess that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. Ryan's going to tell you what you need to do. Yeah, you guys know the drill. If you want to help out the show, please interact with it somehow, wherever it is you get it, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your platform is. Rating it, commenting, sharing, subscribing, all those things help tell the algorithmic overlords that it's a good show and probably some more people should hear it. But if you really want to help out, telling somebody who you think might like it is the best way for the show to spread naturally. And if you want to tell us what you think about it and request new topics or suggest another guest, you can do so at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com. And you can check us out on pretty much every social media platform. I'm sure they'll all be in the show notes. For Ryan, this is Jay reminding you to think for yourself. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. And don't forget to check us out on the Zombie Road Tour, which will play after this. And you got to hear it at the beginning of the podcast, so hopefully we'll see you there. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It's time for a special announcement. You all know about the infamous Zombie Road from our podcast, a real-life dark forest just west of St. Louis. Well, we're planning a free Zombie Road tour on Saturday, October 28th at noon. All are welcome, but the tour will include descriptions of violence, death, and hauntings. Zombie Road boasts an array of hauntings, including shadow people, a railroad worker's spirit, a lady in white, old blue, the mummy, a monkey man, flannel man, black-eyed kids, and so much more. Deaths were commonplace in the area, beginning with Native American battlegrounds, suicides, accidental deaths, 
and murders. The tour will be 100% free, and we will have some merch for sale, so bring some cash. Join us for a Halloween party like no other on the infamous Zombie Road. Feel free to come dressed up in your scariest costume. We'll see you there Saturday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Central Time. Sherman Beach Park, 1582 St. Paul Road, Baldwin, Missouri, 63021. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.